0: Well, good morning. It's uh, great to see you. I'm excited to continue on our journey as we talk about our Lasting Impact uh, campaign, our stewardship campaign. As we go through about every three years, we get to a point like this, and we make financial commitments. And what I really want to do this Sunday is I really want to look at that kind of first word, that first word in our campaign title. Our campaign title is Lasting Impact. And I want to take that first word, Lasting. Lasting. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Lasting. Wouldn't it be nice to have things that actually last? Right? No batteries required. Right? Things that don't wind down. Things that don't break. Wouldn't it be great to have something that actually lasted? I'll give you an example. The favorite toy, the favorite toy by far in the Crandall household. Is our laser guns. My kids love our laser guns. We love our laser guns. Those things were a wonderful investment, a wonderful investment. In fact, just this week, we had about 15 kids over the house, and they're running around in my backyard in the dark shooting each other. Yes, that's what happens when you come to Pastor Paul's house. Violence just takes, I mean, it was just crazy madhouse, and I did the responsible thing as a parent. I shut the slider, and I talk to all the adults in the room, and I let my neighbors deal with the kids in the backyard. No. But we love our laser guns. We love them. But I tell you what. They eat through the battery budget like you wouldn't believe. Because they're always running out of energy. They're always running out of a charge. And one of the reasons is because my three-year-old, who loves our laser guns, will leave the gun on, and then he'll hide it. Somewhere in the house. And what these laser guns happen to do, because the person who designed them hates parents, makes these guns every three minutes make this charging noise. Every three minutes. If you're not playing with it, it's like the gun is telling you, hey, play with me. I can't tell you how many times I've been on my couch, I'm watching Sports Center, I'm about to fall asleep, all the kids are down, and I'll hear right? And I think like an alien just breaking into my house, charging his plasma cannon about to evaporate me, right? And then once, you know, kind of the haze of my almost sleep kind of just goes away, I realize I got to find this thing. Where did my three-year-old hide this thing? Because I'm not going to be able to sleep. And then when I get over that kind of maybe selfish concern, I realize I better find this thing. Because if I don't, He's going to wake up in the morning, run to the laser gun box, or run to wherever he hid that laser gun, and it's going to be dead. The batteries are going to be dead because he left it on all night. And then he's going to cry. And then i got to find that little screwdriver to get all those screws out of the gun, and i got to replace the batteries again, right? It's a wonderful toy, but the thing just doesn't last, but this is true a lot of a lot of our stuff, a lot of our toys. Right? A lot of things in our life just don't last. Right? They, they break. They, they, they wind down. If we want to get a little more adult, the same thing is true with our relationships. Right? They don't last. Or maybe we make a, 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 some investments, and the investment seems to pay off. We, we get this nice return, but what happens is that money is then spent on something that comes... And it goes. Maybe we think to ourselves, oh, we're building all this home equity of this wonderful asset, but then we got to sell Grandpa's house in order to to deal with all the medical bills that are piling up. Things just don't seem to last. They always wind down. They always break. They come and they go. It would be great, wouldn't it, to have something that actually lasted. Well, Jesus says there are things that last. Things that last forever. Things that we can enjoy forever. Things that won't break or wind down. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to talk about those things. And you may already know this, but those things are not in this life. They're in the next life. But what we're going to find Jesus do in our passage today is he's going to connect the things of this life to the things of the next life that actually last. Just because those lasting things aren't in this life doesn't mean that they're not connected to the things that last in the next life. Jesus will actually say the way we manage the stuff we have now will actually impact what we enjoy in eternity. The way we handle the things that break, the way we handle the things that come and go, the way they handle the things that wind down right now will actually affect our experience in eternity and our experience of those things that last forever let me show you this go to luke chapter 16 luke chapter 16 and here's what i think we're going to find out because jesus is going to take the idea of money just head on the idea of wealth just head on our finances head on and here's what i think we are going to learn from jesus christ in luke chapter 16 this is our big idea for today, so if you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. It's a little longer than my normal big ideas, but I think it's, there's no way to make it smaller. Here's what I think we're going to find from Jesus Christ today, and that is this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. We, we saw this in, in Pastor Tim's sermon uh, last week. He clearly unpacked it. Yeah, we can't take it with us. We, we can't take it with us. He kind of gave us that wonderful illustration of you can't put a U-Haul on a hearse, right? You can't take it with you. But you can send it ahead. There's a way in which you handle your money right now, your wealth right now, your things right now that will change what you experience in eternity as followers of Jesus Christ, as we are going to this campaign, we need to really look ahead and look beyond retirement. We need to look into eternity. We need to look ahead, and Jesus is going to tell us a story of a manager, somebody who is managing assets, and he is going to look ahead, and Jesus is going to use this as an example to tell us, guys, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead let's look at this together. Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 1. Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 1, it says this, and he, being Jesus, also said to his disciples. Now, just stop here for a moment. We've gotten very far, but this is very important. You'll see at the very end of the message why this is important. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. That is significant. Especially when we get to the very end of our passage and the end of this story Because I think it's one of the keys to help us unlock what this whole story is about and it's kind of a messy story This is not an easy story to understand what's happening And you'll see this as we go through the details, but this is one of those details that is incredibly helpful Jesus is speaking not to the crowd But to his disciples those that have already decided to follow him. Here's the story That he tells them. He also said to his disciples there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought up to him that this man, this manager, was wasting his possessions. Oh no. What is this man doing? Apparently, in his management position, he was able to be reckless, if you will, wasteful, if you will. He's not using his management position. Wisely, Maybe he's cutting some stuff off the top, right? Maybe he's taking some profit for himself that he shouldn't take. He's doing something. He's mismanaging funds. The guy, the rich man, is losing money. He's he's leaking water, if you will. Something is happening. And the rich man hears about it, and he says, this is not going to do. I I can't have this. Look at his interaction with the manager. And it said, verse 2, And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Now, notice, that's not really a question. That's an accusation. He's not looking for information. This is going to lead to termination. It's over. There's not an inquiry that's going to happen. No committee is going to evaluate the manager. No, no, this isn't an audit, this is a firing. What is this I hear? That's it, you're out. Right? Look at his next statement turn in the account of your management. For you can no longer be a manager. Right there we see he asked a question, but he already knew the answer. Or at least in his mind, he was, con- he was convinced. This guy is wasteful. This guy is reckless. This guy can't be trusted. Dude, you're out. Now it's kind of weird that Jesus is introducing a character who's a little morally kind of messy, isn't it? Okay, Jesus, what's your point here? Well, that, po- that, 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 that problem only grows as we see this manager behave. Because now he has a problem. He just lost his job. He's unemployed. There's no COVID relief check going to come bail him out. What is he going to do? This guy's a manager of of a pretty large estate, and we'll see that. He's upper middle class right now, and now he's afraid he's going to be below poverty line. He's got a really, really big problem, and a severage package doesn't seem to be coming. Look at his deliberation with himself. He says this, in verse three, and the manager said to himself, "What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg." What is he talking about there? I, I don't want to move from a cubicle to a construction site. You know, I'm, I'm a white collar guy. I, I'm, I'm not a blue collar guy. I think we can take these terms even even more severe. What he's talking about here, begging and digging. This is like the most menial kind of manual labor that he's talking about here. He's basically pl- placing himself about one step above slavery. So he's saying, "I'm about to go again from upper middle class, probably, the management of a state to the very bottom. This is not okay with me." I'm concerned. Right? And then look at his next Comment. Because not only is he going to lose his job, it sounds like he's going to lose his house. Look at verse 4. For I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Why is he concerned about his house? Because he probably lives on the estate. He probably lives in, in some house of the rich man. So now he's saying, I've not only lost my job, But I've lost my home This isn't good Now we feel a little sympathy for this guy Don't we But it's true he was wasteful before That's how Jesus kind of sets up the parable Sets up the story He was reckless before He was not managing the money, the wealth correctly And now he finds himself in this Problem A problem of his own making It's a consequence of his own actions And now he's in a mess So what is he going to do And the way the language is kind of written there in verse 4, it's like he has this kind of sudden epiphany. This like, aha moment. I've got it! I know what I'm going to do. And this is the point, I think, that Jesus really wants to press to his disciples. Because what the man is about to do is look ahead. He's going to look ahead. He's going to make some present adjustments that may hurt. that may be hard. He's going to do that. Why? Because his future is at stake. He's worried about what will happen later. And this is the principle, I think, that Jesus wants us to unpack and that Jesus wants us to apply to ourselves. We can't take it with us, but we could send it ahead. We need to look to the future. Now, look what this guy does. And it's really hard to understand how we should treat what this guy does. Right? Look down at verse, where are we? Verse 5. He says, I know what I'm going to do. Verse 4, I came up with a plan so that people may receive me into their houses. I'm going to do something that indebts people to me. I'm going to do something that that makes it favorable for people to help me in the future. Look at verse 5. So he does this. So summoning his master's debtors, not his, it says one by one. That's an interesting phrase. Think about when you use that phrase. We're going to do this one by one. If you're using that phrase, are you talking about two meetings? No, you're probably talking about several meetings, right? If you're going to say one by one, you probably have a long list of meetings. You don't really need to say that if you only have two meetings, right? I think it's fair to assume that what's about to happen, because we're only going to see two of these meanings kind of unpacked for us, that what this man is doing is there's actually a list of meetings that he has. He has set up uh, meetings with these debtors. And not in a big group. That's not a good idea for him. He's going to do it secretly. This kind of shows us already, we're kind of getting a hint already, whatever this guy is doing, it's messy. It's, It's probably criminal. It's probably not good. What he's doing right now is not noble. It's not a good thing. It's not a sacrificial thing. Why would he have to set up these one-on-one meetings? Nobody else comes, just you and this guy in a room, and he's got a list of these lined up for himself. Well, look what he does at two of these meetings. Now, I would think it's fair to assume that there are more than just two of these meetings. Look at meeting number one. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master. What does the guy say? And he said, or sorry, verse 6. He said, a hundred measures of oil. This is a large sum of debt. A hundred measures of oil. Just to put that in context a little bit, because I don't know, we don't normally deal in our kind of economic language with measures of oil. Right? When you go out today to take mom out the is not going to ask you, yeah, here's your final bill, three measures of oil. Hope you brought it in the back of your car, right? It's a little lost on us, but this is a huge debt. A measure probably then, when it comes to oil, is about eight gallons of oil, and this guy owes a hundred measures of oil. That's 800 gallons of oil. It would take probably 150 olive trees to produce this amount Of oil. This is a huge debt If you're going to put it just in the idea of an average salary of a laborer We're talking three years salary So take your salary, multiply it by three That's how much this guy owes the master So this tells you kind of the management position that this guy's in This is only one of his meetings And this is how big the debt is So this guy is working for a very, very wealthy man And this debt is humongous. And look what he does for this guy. Look down at verse 6. And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly. Hmm. Why do it quickly? Probably because, again, this is a shady deal. (laughs) Hey, do this quick. And he tells him to write it. Why does he tell him to write it? Because back then in the ancient world, the people who drew up the contracts were the people who were actually taking on the debt. So their handwriting could be a witness that they were willing to take on the debt. So they didn't just sign on the dotted line. They wrote the whole contract out. So their signature and their handwriting could be confirmed. So he's saying, hey, tear up the old one, write a new one. And when he does that, there's really no way, there's no evidence to prove otherwise. So he's now putting the master or the rich man in a really particular situation a really hard situation And he tells him here's what I want you to write sit down quickly and write 50 Wow, wouldn't you be wouldn't that be great if your bank just called you and say hey So we want to talk to you about this mortgage you got How about we cut it in half? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, you might send a thank you card to your banker That's what he's thinking Right? He's looking ahead. Hey, if I cut this guy's bill in half, when I lose my job, maybe he'll give me employment. Maybe I'll work for them. This is clearly bigger than a family farm. It's much larger than that. Maybe not only will they look out for me, but maybe they'll employ me. Right, look at the next meeting that he has. Verse 7. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. That's probably 10 bushels of wheat. That's about 1,000 bushels of wheat of what this guy owes. That's a lot. That's probably going to be about what 100 acres would take to yield. This is a larger debt than the last guy has. This is like nine years of an annual salary for an average laborer. Nine years of debt. So now take your salary, your annual salary, multiply it by nine. That's how big the debt is. And look what he tells this guy to do. Now I kind of feel bad for this guy because he doesn't get the deal with the first guy. Maybe this is why he did it one-on-one. I right? didn't want to hear the guy, <laughs> the other guy got a really good discount. But this guy still catches a break. He says this: take your bill and write 80. Okay, 20%. I'd still take that. And I bet you would take that as well. What is this guy doing? Now, here's what happens sometimes. When we read the Bible, sometimes we feel uncomfortable about what the Bible is saying. We feel like the story is a little messy. And because the story is messy, we feel like we got to clean it up. We like our stories to have a really just kind of a glowing hero, a Superman, if you will. No flaws, no airs, a perfect chin, right? Basically, we like our heroes to look like Pastor Paul. That wasn't a joke. I'll tell you when the jokes come. We'll raise your hand. No. Right? But well, we want a clean-cut-looking hero. That's what we want. And what do we have right now? This guy doesn't look so clean. This guy doesn't look so messy. He's just eliminating death. So here's what happens sometimes. We try to read in good things. Because why would Jesus tell us a parable of a guy who's not a really good hero? A guy who sounds more like a villain. Why would he tell us that story? So oftentimes people try to do when they read this passage say oh here's what this is happening here um uh, the rich man is charging just an enormous amount of interest and so what this guy is doing is actually a noble thing he's cutting out this just terrible level of interest so he's actually being a moral man right or other readers would say well here's what's happening what, the, what the, the manager is doing is he's cutting out his commission. So he was going to make this much money off of these debts, so now he's cutting out his commission, which sounds kind of weird if he just lost his job, then now he's going to lose his commissions. So you're telling me he's taken off his last paycheck. Now here I think is the problem with those two readings. I think you can fit them in, but that's the problem. You have to fit them in. You have to see to details that Luke doesn't mention That Jesus doesn't mention And sometimes the plain reading Is actually the best reading Even if it makes it feel uncomfortable I think what this guy is doing Is not cutting commissions I don't think he's cutting interest I think he's being criminal I think it's exactly what this guy's doing And I think that's exactly What Jesus thinks he's doing In the next verse Right? Look at how Jesus describes this guy In verse 8 It says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What is this guy called now? It's only after he's done these kind of shady deals, these one-on-one meetings, that now he's called dishonest. In the first part of the passage, he was wasteful. He was reckless with the money. He wasn't called dishonest then. He was just being wasteful. Now he's being called dishonest. Okay, so if we read it that way, Jesus, what do you want us to learn from this? Why are you telling us this story? I feel like the disciples are just kind of scratching their head like, wait, why did you tell us the story of this guy? This kind of shady character. It's because what I think Jesus is doing, and he does this before, this is the first time he's done this. He's using what I like to call a much more strategy, meaning this. He likes to say, hey, if a bad person's going to do this, how much more should a good person do this? He does the same thing with God. In just a couple chapters from where we are, he tells the story of a widow and an unjust judge. And he talks about how this persistent widow comes up to this unjust judge, and she continually says and requests of him something. And finally, the unjust judge is worn down and he answers the request. And Jesus likens God the Father to the unjust judge. Now, should we take from that that God is unjust? No. We read that passage, that story, very easily and say, what he's saying is if the unjust guy, the bad guy, does this, how much more does our benevolent Father in heaven do this? It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Yeah, this guy is messy Yeah, this guy is a criminal But what is he? He's shrewd And he looked ahead And so Jesus says If this guy looks ahead You guys better look ahead Right? Look how he makes this clear In the next verse In verse Well, we'll read verse 8 For the master commended the dishonest manager Again, he's not pleased with what he did But he has to recognize Man, that was a pretty good strategy Way to look ahead He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Do you see that? He made that comparison. If this is how the sons of the world are, those who are set against the things of God, those who have decided to commit their life to something besides God, those who are not looking to follow God's design, If this is how they act, if they look forward in this way, the sons of light, again, remember he's speaking to who? His disciples. He's saying, hey, you guys should do even better. Now, why should we do that? Why should we look ahead? Look at this next verse. Probably the most intriguing and interesting part of the entire story here. Once we get past the mess of what this manager is doing Look at the reasoning that Jesus gives for why we should look ahead. And if you've been a Christian for a while, this may feel a little uncomfortable what Jesus says here. Look what Jesus says in verse 9 For I tell you, make friends. This is a command from Jesus Christ make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. I think a better way to translate that is worldly wealth. I think Jesus right now is speaking of if the wealth is sinful or something like that. I don't think he's talking about the moral quality of the wealth. I think a better way to translate that is worldly wealth. It's just the wealth of this world. It's the wealth of now. It's the money in your pocket, the numbers in your bank account. I think that's what he's talking about. I tell you, make friends by means of worldly wealth. Use your money wisely. Why? Here's the purpose. So that when it fails, and it will, and I think he's talking about the passing into the next life, when all the money is gone and you can't take it with you, right? That's the first part of the big idea. You can't take it with you. So what happens? So that when it fails, you may receive, or they may receive you into the eternal Dwellings. What? What does that mean? It means exactly what you think it means. What are the eternal dwellings, the lasting places that we will reside? When he's speaking to disciples, when he's speaking to the sons of light, those who've committed themselves to following Jesus and his design, those who've placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, Death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. What's the future we look forward to? What's the eternal dwelling? He's talking about heaven. So let's read that again. Use what? Make friends with your worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into heaven. What? What? I love this passage. I always love those passages that are really hard to understand. Because to me, it just intrigues me to really dive in and figure out what's going on there. So what is going on here? What is he talking about? Well, first part we got to ask is this. Is he talking about our entrance into heaven? Or is he talking about our experience in heaven? Because clearly what Jesus is saying, how you handle your money right now will affect your eternity later. It will affect your experience, your reception in heaven. The hospitality at which you're welcomed into the eternal dwellings will change based on how what? You use your worldly wealth. How you handle your money now will change your experience in eternity. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you read the Bible you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a second, I know a lot of Jesus' teaching who said that we should give without thinking of a return. And you're totally right. 100%. Right before this, Jesus talked about how our hospitality to those who are less fortunate shouldn't be, hey, I'm going to indebt them to me. So when I throw a party, I'm going to give the best spot to the richest person, so hopefully they'll invite me to their party. And sometimes we can take those passages and say so giving and living with our finances We should always treat it as there will be no reward. We should never think of reward That's not true It's not true It's where we look for that reward and who we look to give us that reward It's not that there's no reward. It's just that the reward is later and the reward is from him Let me show you this is in the gospel of luke Just just flip over a couple chapters to chapter 19. We see this again. Jesus tells a story a story of a man who's given money, made an investment to his servants. And these, these servants have served faithfully with that money. They return their return, or they give their return to their master. And look what the master says to one who has given him a return he gives him a reward. This is Luke chapter 19, verse 17. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Is there a reward? Yes, clearly, Jesus thinks there's a reward. Just in case Jesus isn't enough for you, look at the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he speaks of a judgment, a judgment that is not for those that aren't following Jesus, but for those that are following Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says this, for we, we, interesting word, what is he saying there? Me and you guys. Me as a follower of Jesus Christ and you guys as a church, the church at Corinth. We're going to experience something. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Does Paul believe there will be rewards in heaven? Yes, clearly he does. He's totally in line with what Jesus says that Jesus believes that there are rewards in heaven. We should look ahead. Because it'll change our experience. Now, again, let's go back to that question Is this about our entrance into heaven or our experience in heaven? I think the answer is both. Let's take the first one experience. Now, why do I say experience? Because Jesus is speaking to who? His disciples, right? Jesus' command is to who? The sons of light. It doesn't sound like Jesus believes these guys have a big question mark as to if they're going to go to heaven or not. It's not about if they're going to go to heaven, but how they will be received in heaven, their experience, what will be their reward in heaven. That feels like the most comfortable reading of this passage. But look down again at our verse, because we've got to be okay with sometimes reading the Bible and finding that Maybe it's not as clear, or it's a little messy, or it takes a little bit of effort to push in, push toward a clearer understanding of the passage. Look again what Jesus says in verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth. Again, I think that's the better translation. Worldly wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That could be experience. But at first glance, it looks like entrance, right? I think it is talking about that. Even though he's speaking to the sons of light, even though he's speaking to disciples. Why is that? I don't think it's because Jesus is saying you could buy your way into heaven. I don't think we should read it like that. I don't think he's talking about you can buy your way in But I think he is saying this. The way you buy shows if you're in. The way you handle your money. The way you handle your finances. The way you are generous. The way you use all of your wealth. Your perspective on all your possessions is going to be affected by your decision to follow Jesus. And if there's no effect in your life, no fruit in your life, if you're not a generous person, if your perspective is prideful and selfish, if you accumulate possessions for your own enjoyment, you show that your heart has not been changed. How you buy shows you're not in. And look at this. Jesus deal with this tension. Go go to Matthew chapter 13. I just read this in my devotional life and thought it was really interesting as it applies to our passage. Because I think what Jesus is going to say to us here is there are people who call themselves disciples. There are people who call themselves sons of light that are not. And wealth shows that they're not. Look at this. As Jesus is starting to grow in his popularity... Crowds are starting to be drawn. There's having all these different responses to Jesus and his message. And Jesus uses a parable to describe kind of the response that people have to his message. And he uses the idea of a farmer going out and sowing seed. And and there's several soils that the seed falls off. Or falls on, and immediately something springs, something grows, there's a positive response. And the majority of the responses are positive in the beginning. The majority of them. But it's only the minority of those responses that actually endure. And look at one of the positive responses. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. And as for what was sown among thorns. And it grew. But look what happened. This is the one who hears the word. There's a response. In the parable before, just a couple of verses prior to this moment, it grows. Maybe they get excited. Maybe they get baptized. Maybe they join a Bible study. Man, things are looking good. They're serious with Jesus. Look at this. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So I think it's very fair to say in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus is speaking, I think Jesus is speaking of both. I think Jesus is speaking of entrance and experience. How you handle your money right now will have a lasting, personal impact on your eternity. You may find that the way you've handled your wealth has proven that you're not in, that you're not a disciple, that you're not a son of light. But your experience may be different. You may have that entrance. You got in, but the way you handled your finances, the way you handled your money, you didn't look far enough ahead. You didn't make investments now that you can enjoy later and now changes your experience. I don't think you're going to be disappointed in heaven, but it's very true. You'll have less rewards because how you handled your finances now. Look how Jesus ends off the story because I think it's very interesting how Jesus is going to kind of contrast these ideas of wealth now and reward later let's just look at them briefly wealth now, reward later money now, reward later look at how he talks about them look at Jesus' perspective on the money that we have right now and how that's related to the reward we'll experience later when we look ahead look at how Jesus describes we're in verse 10 he says this the one who is faithful in very little what is money right now very little The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. What is the reward later? It is much. It's very little over here. Money now is very little. Reward later is much. He continues to go. Verse 11. So then if you have been fruitful in unrighteous wealth, again, I think a better translation is worldly wealth, temporal things, things that break, things that unwind, the laser guns of your life, the things that always break, that always come and go, that's what money is right now. It is worldly. Who will entrust you, entrust to you true riches? What is the reward later? It's true. It is much. It is true. It's not very little, and it's not worldly. He keeps going. Verse 12. And if you have been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own. This is the most curious description here, the most curious contrast here. Notice what he talks about or how he talks about the money we have now. Whose is it? It's another's. It's somebody else's. Isn't that ironic? We think it's ours. But then he says, no, 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 the reward later, that is your own. The only thing you truly possess that you can call your own is what you've sent ahead. Is the lasting things of eternity in the age to come. Those are the only things you own, which makes sense. Because when you die, all your stuff goes to somebody else. And the stuff that you have has either been somebody else or it's been given to you by God. So it's just temporarily moving through your hands, it's not really your own. Jesus looks at his disciples. And he tells them, look ahead. He uses a messy example. And he tells them, look ahead. Look, you can't take this money stuff with you. This very little you can't take with you. This this worldly stuff you can't take with you. This stuff that is another's you can't take with you. But how you handle this, you can send reward ahead. True riches that are much and that are your own. You can't take it with you. But you can send it ahead. Let me give you an illustration of this, and I want you to kind of interact with this. Okay, let me set the scenario, and then I want you to ask, your, ask yourself the question that I'm going to guide you to. Okay, I want you to pretend for a moment that you are uh, an American art collector. I mean, you love art. You go in your house, and you've got paintings all over the place. Uh, masterpieces. Modern art, historic art. I mean, it's just wonderful. You just have a, Your house is like a gallery. And you're having some friends over And one of your friends happens to know a billionaire And he's heard about your love of art And so as he's kind of looking through the house He's just so inspired And he just admires your exquisite taste in art And so after everybody has left He has stayed behind And he comes up to you Puts his arm around your shoulder And says friend I want to give you the trip of a lifetime I'm so inspired by what I see I admire all the things that you've collected. So I want to give you the trip of a lifetime. With one catch. I want to send you to Europe for three months. Wow! That's awesome! You think of all the places you can go, all the art you can see. And he takes it to the next level. Three months, I want you to go on a trip to Europe. And I'm going to send you with 30 million dollars. Holla! Right? That's an exciting trip. What a wonderful gift. And he says, all right, but one catch. One catch. Now, if I'm the guy, I'm thinking, okay, which kidney do you want? Like, what is this going to cost me? And he says, there's one catch. One catch. You can't bring anything back. Can't bring the money back. You can't put the art that you see or buy on the plane. You can't bring anything back no checked baggage. It's not flying southwest. You don't get checked bags for free. You cannot bring anything back. Now ask yourself this question. How would you live on that trip? Because he tells you, you can't bring anything back, but here's what you can do. Anything that you buy and send back home is yours forever. Any piece of art as you go over there and you travel in France and you see if you buy it you send it back home it's yours forever how would you live? wouldn't it be silly to fill your hotel room with artwork? artwork you can only enjoy for three months never truly own now you could take that thirty million dollars and have a lot of fun for three months, right? But remember what you desire. Remember what you crave. Remember what just inspires you to joy. It's the beauty of art. Would you not go on this three-month journey and live on the basics and invest in as much valuable art as you could possibly find with that 30 million dollars and send it all home where you could enjoy it and it could be yours forever. This is true of us. We're on a trip. This is not our home. And the stuff we have now, we can enjoy for now. Or, we could send it ahead and truly enjoy it forever. It could be ours forever. Not another, not very little, not worldly, not temporal, but forever. It could be ours. We could enjoy it forever. A reward that will never leave us. Those laser guns in heaven, those batteries never go out. They're never broken and nothing ever winds down. You're on a trip. The money you have is not your own. So how are you going to spend it? Are you going to enjoy it now? Are you going to send it ahead? This is the question I think you should ask yourself before you make your financial commitment to this campaign. Now, I'm not telling you what number to do. And I know the numbers are scary. The numbers are scary. Have you seen them? Man, I mean, I'm dyslexic, so I'm moving the numbers all the time, and they just get scarier, not so scary, scary. Once I realize what they are, those are scary numbers. When we're talking about numbers in the million, those are scary numbers. Now, they shouldn't scare us. Why shouldn't they scare us? Because we've faithfully knocked out some pretty big numbers in the history of this church. Just to speak completely practically, did you know that that second level, we could complete that second level and enter into that third level. We could see the first level completely done, the second level done, stepping into that third level. We could see that if all of us who are currently giving right now would just say, hey, over the next three years, I'm going to give 2% more. If we all gave 2% more, we would crush level two. Did you know that? It seems big and scary when you're just thinking about yourself. But if we moved up our giving 2% and moved that 2% into the capital stewardship campaign, we would crush level 2. Crush it. Move into level 3. Just 2%. If you're giving 5% of your income right now, you move it to 7% of your income, and you take that 2%, you move it. If you give 10, and you say, I'm going to move it to 12, and for three years, I'm taking that 2, and I'm putting it over here. If you give 15, you move to 17, you take that 2%, you move over here. If we all just bumped up 2%, level 2 is in the review mirror. So those numbers shouldn't scare us. But the numbers shouldn't be your main concern. I'm not here to tell you the number. Jesus has not told me the number for you. <laughs> and as Lindsay and I are looking at what we would give, and we haven't decided yet, we've prayed a lot about it, we've thought a lot about it, we've put around a, a couple scenarios, I'll tell you what's messing up the whole equation. It's this question right here. Paul, how much do you want to send ahead? You can't take it with you, Paul. How much do you want to send ahead? What do you think that does to the number of scenarios? <laughs> it just keeps making them go higher. How much do we want to send ahead? Now, I don't want you to hear that only what you give to the campaign is what you're sending ahead. No, that's not true. Now, I want to be fair to what Jesus is saying. Any way you use your money for the kingdom of God, any way you use your resources in ways that honor God, that is sending it ahead. You will enjoy those rewards. Jesus unpacks that. Even our charity to those who are needy. That's sending it ahead to enjoy a reward forever. That question doesn't apply just to the campaign, but it does apply to the campaign. So as you sit there, ask yourself the question, how much do you want to send ahead? Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. You are so generous to us. Your giving is incredible, it's matchless. We can't go beyond it. We can't outgive you. We don't even have enough to outgive you. If you gave us all the wealth in the world, we couldn't outgive you. If we gave it all back, because you have given as a sacrifice the greatest thing of value in this universe, and that is your Son, Jesus Christ. And and it, it is that story that we see that inspires us, encourages us to always push forward and push the line a little bit of what we give financially. And Father, I'm so excited that we get to invest in our eternity in things that actually last. Things that can be ours, things that are much, that are true wealth. We can send it ahead. Oh, Father, I pray that you just do a fantastic work. I know of the conversations that I've had with people. They're not even thinking of the 2% margin. They're thinking, I'm going to add 5% to my giving for three years. I'm so excited about that. Father, I don't know what all the numbers are. But I know what you're doing in my heart. I know what you're doing in Lindsay's heart. And we're excited to share that to our kids. Oh, Father, I thank you for the faithful generations that have brought us to this moment, who have given sacrificially to these campaigns. And we sit here right now because of their faithfulness. Father, may there be a generation that enjoys the ministry of Valley Bible Church because of the gifts given in this campaign. I pray, Father, that we would send it ahead. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You're dismissed. We'll see you next Sunday.